Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn one more time to the letter of First Timothy. And you can go right to the very end of the letter. And we're going to wrap up this letter and put a bow on it here this morning. If you've been here for the last few weeks, we've seen now that Paul is holding up here, especially in chapter 6 and a little bit earlier as well, the value of, of godliness and encouraging us and encouraging the church to pursue godliness above all other pursuits or all other possible pursuits that there are in the world. He's asking us to, who make up the church to, to take stock, to consider all of our desires and all of our cravings. And then once we have all those together in one place, whether you write them down or whatever it is, to, to prioritize them. And then he wants us to ask ourselves whether our desire for godliness rises to the top, whether it is the thing that we value above all else. Well, one of the comparisons that helps answer that question, one of the competing desires, a competing desire that's universal for all time, whether it was in Paul's and Timothy's day there in the city of Ephesus in around 60 AD, or whether it's in 2017 here in central Alberta, is the desire for money and the desire for wealth and just the general desire for stuff, what we would maybe call materialism. The universal North American desire for stuff is a good measuring stick to think about what it is that we really treasure, especially for us who desire to be godly, who desire to be followers of Jesus Christ. The the church is not immune to this competition of priorities, to this, uh, might say, this perpetual arm wrestle of competing desires, which is really a struggle between worldliness on the one hand and godliness on the other hand. What will win out? If you were to examine your life and your priorities, even right now, which one is winning? That's kind of the challenge that Paul is giving us as he closes this letter. And he comes back to the theme of wealth and money and how we as a Christian church ought to think about that. He's addressed that a little bit earlier in chapter 6, and now as he ends the letter, he's going to get back, come back to that theme. And he tells Timothy to give a charge to the rich. But you'll notice these kind of banking pictures, these images that sort of carry this through even as I read these last few verses here of 1 Timothy. And so I encourage you to go down to verse 17 of chapter 6, and I'm going to read, encourage you to follow along right to the end of the chapter. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Our Father, we thank you for this letter that you have allowed us to 
journey through these last number of months. And Lord, we pray that as this letter now closes, this letter that you inspired through your Holy Spirit, that you um, transmitted through the ages, and that comes down to us on this very day, January 29th, 2017, that you would help us to um, see the truth in this, and, and, and that we would um, succumb and, and, and submit ourselves to what you would have for us through these words. We pray that you would do that by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So notice all those pictures. Not only does Paul write to the rich here, but he talks about storing up treasures. He's, he's talking here about guarding deposits. Those sound like banking terms. But he uses those monetary kinds of images to really just teach two spiritual lessons to the church as he closes this letter. The first is to set our hope on God, and the second is to guard the gospel. So let's take a quick look at these two summary instructions here in this letter. He starts by telling Timothy to give a a charge, to give an instruction to the rich in this present age. So uh, this is not like it was before those who want to get rich. You know, he said before that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. He wants Timothy here to instruct those now who are already rich. Now, is he just talking to a few people? Is he just talking to the elite here? I don't think so. Look back in verse 8. He says, if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And so he's saying, even with only the, those bare necessities of, of life, we can be content if we have God. The rich, I think, would include anyone who has more than just food and clothing. And here in this church today, just like Ephesus in that day, it would include really all of us. All of us could be included in the category of the rich in this present age. Now, yes, some have more than others, but I think if we were to just take stock here of who, who's surviving with just food and clothing, I don't think any of us would. So this, a char- this charge here applies to all of us. And it really does. We all have an ample supply of material blessings. And so this is really a charge asking us what place our things, our possessions, our riches should have in the life of those who aspire to godliness or those who are supposedly in the world but are not of the world. How are we as Christians supposed to think about our possessions, our riches, our blessings, our wealth? Maybe we're supposed to be like the typical young urban professional the yuppies, as Chuck Swindoll has put the poem in something he, I'm not sure if he wrote it or if he got it somewhere, called the yuppie prayer. How do yuppies pray? Here's how they possibly might. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Cuisinart to keep. I pray my stocks are on the rise and that my analyst is wise. That all the wine I sip is white and that my hot tub's watertight. That racquetball won't get too tough and that all my sushi is fresh enough. I pray my new, smartphone works, my new smartphone still works, that my career won't lose its perks. My, my microwave won't radiate, my condo won't depreciate. I pray my health club doesn't close and my money market grows. If I grow broke before I wake, I pray my Volvo they won't take. 
Well, that's a humorous way to describe the common mindset of the person who is set, whose mind is set on earthly things, isn't it? It's all about my stuff and my money. It's a prayer that God, God would make sure I have enough all the time. It's a world in which self is at the center. Did you notice that? The world revolves around me, myself, and I. It's a self-centered prayer. But that's the air that we breathe. I mean, I laugh at that kind of thing, but, but that's the kind of thinking that's prevalent in, in the people that we rub shoulders with all the time. So should the Christian mindset be different? And the answer is yes. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. But it does require some effort and some resistance. Like he said back in verse 10, it requires that we fight the good fight of the faith. It requires some swimming against the tide. Christians ought not to have self in the center. We should have God in the center. We need to set our hope in God. Colossians 3, verse 2, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And later in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And how we think about our material wealth is a good measuring stick for us on how we're doing. Let's pay attention to Paul's charge here then to the rich in this present age. First, he's going to describe the grave dangers that are inherent with having riches. There are two of them that he mentions there in verse 17. It says, charge them not to be, number one, haughty, or number two, to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The first peril that we'll face in this materialism-focused present age is that our wealth can lead to haughtiness. It can lead to, to pride. The word literally means high-minded. When we have riches, our mind naturally drifts to thinking that we somehow did something to deserve what we've got. And not only that, but our attitude can drift into thinking that we are actually above other people that maybe don't have as much. We can get a bit of a superiority complex very subtly without maybe even realizing it. This is just an admission that when we have anything more than the necessities, it has the tendency to produce in us an attitude and an air of of pride and of self-sufficiency. And even in our culture, as we look around at others, we, we actually elevate those who have more, those who are the rich. But as Christians, again, that flies in the face of the attitude of Christ. And by extension, Christians were to be lowly of mind. And by extension, the church. James actually warns people who elevate the rich in, in, in churches. In James chapter 2, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you've got to go stand over there. Or even, how about you sit at my feet? He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Later in chapter 4, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
So back to 1 Timothy. Notice that Paul doesn't say that there's anything, first of all, you need to see this, there's nothing wrong with being rich. That's not what he's saying here. He just says that if we are in that category, we need to be careful not to let it go to our head. Having money can be very deceptive. We think that when we make a good investment or, or when we get a good return, that it's because of our ingenuity or our intelligence. You can see the danger. It can lead to thinking that we've done it and that we deserve it. It puts the focus where? On our achievement, which then would take glory away from God's goodness. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. There's a second danger. The second danger is the delusion that creeps in where all of our hopes get, get anchored in riches, in our possessions. And not only that, but our riches become the source of our security, the source of our trust. But Paul's saying that wealth and riches and possessions are ultimately uncertain. Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches, whoever trusts in them, will fall. Or later on in Proverbs 23, verses 4 and 5, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Why? Because when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it it sprouts wings and, and, and flies away like an eagle toward heaven. It's kind of like the, the child with a helium balloon, right? You let, got this great balloon, you're so happy, and all of a sudden they let go, and there it goes. That's what Proverbs says. What it's like to, to, if we desire to acquire wealth. Suddenly it sprouts wings and it's gone. Earthly riches are uncertain. They're, they're temporary. And we have to realize that. Our lives right now are actually just a small, even if we live up to 100, they're just a small blip, those years in our eternal existence. Don't set your hopes on that which is temporary and that which will have no value after this life. And let's just admit again that this isn't easy to do. This is a very real and present danger. Why? Because it's something that can make us turn away from our trust in God. That's why Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 18, 24, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. Just think about that. What makes it so difficult to enter the kingdom of God? Well, what makes it difficult is that we don't want to go there. Why? Because our hope is set right here. We, we just want to stay. We get deluded into thinking that what we have now is certain. And that's misplaced security. It's misplaced trust, misplaced reliance, and ultimately, ultimately misplaced hope. One writer I read this week said that a certain hope must have a certain basis, and wealth isn't it. And that's so true. The only certainty of riches is that they'll sprout wings and pass away. So, if a certain hope must have a certain basis, and if wealth isn't it, what is a certain basis? Well, of course, the answer is God. 
God is the certain basis, the foundation of our hope. So charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us, provides us with everything to enjoy. There are grave dangers for the rich. But Paul now sets us on a course, on a, on a godly direction, as we think about our riches. And here we are right back again to the fact that godliness has to have God as its goal. Very obvious statement. God is good. God gives good things. God provides us with riches. But those riches have to point us back to God, not, not to ourselves, not to our achievements, not to our ingenuity. Don't trust in your riches. That's uncertain and ultimately foolish. Hope in God. It's really just saying don't set your hope on gifts, but to set your hope on the giver of those gifts. Find your security in God alone. He doesn't change. He is a certain and sure hope. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Notice back in 1 Timothy 6 that God provides us with everything to enjoy. These are good and perfect gifts, and God in his kindness gives them to us for our enjoyment. But, but our joy has to be in God, in, in the giver, not in the gift. That's the right way to think about the things that God has blessed us with. Set your hope on God. And when we do that, we'll use our gifts then to, to launch us into the direction of being a giver. So God gives, and then we give. When we set our hope on the giver, that same quality then will become true of us. Rather than our riches leading us to become high-minded about ourselves and and becoming self-reliant, our riches will lead us to give and to share and to do good things for others. As we focus on the giver of every good and perfect gift, we'll want to become like God. That's what godliness is. We, we'll want to become a person who richly provides other people with good things for their enjoyment. See how that should work in, in theory? That's the direction that our riches should go towards. When we put all our hope in God and not on our stuff, when we put our confidence in God and not in our own ingenuity, our, our riches will then be directed outwards. We'll recognize them as coming down to us as good gifts from above, but that's not where they should stop. That's not the end of the road. That can't be the last place that they travel. That would be hoarding. Rather, they will flow out from us in order to help other people, and specifically other believers. That's really what's going on in that transition between verses 17 and 18, isn't it? The rich ought to set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, so they come down from, to us. And now verse 18, they are to do good, to, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to, to be ready to share. So it's down and then it's out. Rich provisions from God, good deeds, rich works, generosity, sharing. That's how our possessions can be leveraged for godliness. They have an outward focus. They come from God for our joy, and our enjoyment expresses itself in acts of lavish generosity and sharing. Do you view your possessions like that? Do you view them as 
look what I got for myself. I'm, I'm all set. Now I can just eat, drink, and be merry. That's being haughty. That's setting your hope in the uncertainty of riches. Or do you view your possessions as an opportunity to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to share? So again, let's just all admit that this is a struggle for all of us. We, we, we kind of look at this, and, and in, our, in our holiness, we, uh, it just looks like a straightforward thing on paper, and we'd all likely say amen to option number two. That's what we want to be. But the materialism and the accompanying, uh, keeping up with the Joneses mentality that we live with makes this a very real struggle. Do we really believe that it is God who richly provides? That everything we have comes from God? Do you really believe that? And then, are we really ready to share and to give away our own resources? Are we really ready? Do our possessions stop with us? Is our priority to reinvest them for our benefit? Or is our first priority to give them away? Or maybe even to reinvest them, yes, but for the benefit of others. When we start asking ourselves these kinds of questions, we can see why Paul writes this. It's not easy to think this way. And to actually function and live this way in a culture which is totally possession-oriented. Even when they don't have riches, right? Our society is set up that you can look like you're rich even when you're essentially in debt. And so this kind of thing here in 1 Timothy is very countercultural, very countercultural. But listen, living Christianly will always be countercultural. We shouldn't expect anything else. Why? Because it comes back to the here and now versus the eternal. The question is, what are we storing up and where are we storing it? And that brings us to verse 19. Here's the result of doing things the right way. When people follow these instructions to be generous and to share, it says that they are thus storing up treasure for themselves. For what purpose? For when? For where? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Doing good, being rich in good works, being generous, sharing, might not pay dividends in this life. But those kinds of things lay a foundation that pay dividends in the future. And trust me, you will not be disappointed with the return on that investment. So go ahead and store up for yourself the kind of treasure that involves doing good and being rich in good works, being generous, being ready to share. This is when you grab hold of that which is truly life. What kinds of ways can you do this? What are some good ways to store up treasure through generosity? What are some wise and godly ways to redirect those riches, those things that God has richly provided for you? Well, there are all kinds of ministries that we could name, right, that, that are under the, the cause of Christ. You can use your resources to feed the hungry, to, to heal the sick, to help ensure that unreached peoples hear the gospel. And those things are all good 
and right and necessary. We need to be doing those things or figuring out how we can help in those ways. But I would just remind you that First Timothy was directed to a local church. So consider distributing your wealth to that place where you gather with the saints, where you are equipped, where you are discipled with teaching, where you come together for corporate worship, where you encourage one another and, and pray for one another and bear one another's burdens. You're likely aware that we have financial need here in our church these days. The economy is tough, finances are tight. But as elders, as a finance committee, as we've talked about these sort of things, we have no doubt that our financial expenses can be met if we would all view our riches this way and take seriously Paul's warnings and instructions here in this chapter. And so I'm not going to say any more about that. I'll just leave you with that challenge and allow the Holy Spirit to, to work this in you and through you. So Paul wants them to set their hope on God, to store up for themselves eternal treasure. But he stays with that banking picture here, and he tells Timothy, just in closing, in closing here, to guard the deposit. So first he wants Timothy to instruct the church to store up treasure, and now he wants Timothy and the church to guard the deposit. Look again at verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. When we have something that's precious, or when we have something that's worth a lot, we sometimes make use of, of a safe deposit box in a, in, at a bank. We, we can trust that it will stay safe at the bank. It's secure there. We, we entrust them with the safekeeping of our valuable possessions. And so, so Paul wants Timothy to act as the safe deposit box. He wants him to guard the deposit. What kind of deposit does Paul mean here? Well, if you flip over, and me, it's just on, I don't even have to flip over, it's still on the same page. Oh no, I do have to flip over one page to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. He actually says the same thing there. He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. But here in this section, the verse before actually, uh, or a few verses before, it actually tells us what the deposit is. Look back in verse 10. There it talks about the gospel, for which I, Paul's talking here, was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. So that's the referent here. The deposit is the gospel, the the true, pure gospel. Paul's last word to Timothy and the church is to guard the gospel. Don't let it get altered. Don't let it get stolen. Don't let it get shipwrecked. Don't allow it to be sapped of its power. Guard the gospel. Keep it in that state in which you received it. Paul's just reiterating what he taught through this whole letter here. He's, he's saying that the true gospel is under attack. And it gets attacked from every angle. Attacks can come from outside the church. Those ones are a little bit more obvious sometimes. Or they can be more subtle. They can come even from inside the church. That's what Paul is basically warning about here in Timothy. There are false teachers and false teachings that were coming in. So they can come from inside, from those who profess godliness with, but deny its power. They sometimes come when the gospel is silenced. Sometimes come when the gospel is even assumed and no longer taught. 
John MacArthur says that in our day, pragmatism is in. So pragmatism, the belief that whatever works, that's what you need to do. Whatever gets the most people in, that's what we need to do. He says that produces a watered-down gospel. He says um, pragmatism is in, commitment to the truth is denigrated as a poor marketing strategy. And so he says here that guarding the deposit is, is not an easy task, but we guard it, we must. He continues by saying the most important yardstick by which a church can be measured is not how large it is, how good its fellowship is, how interesting its pastor is. It's not how good the music is, how well the grounds are kept up, or how respected it is in the community. The most important measure of any church is how it handles the word of God. The church's responsibility before God is to guard and proclaim the truths of Scripture. End quote. How do we guard the gospel? Well, the best strategy is to go on the offensive and to make sure we stay true to the word in our proclamation, to make sure we stay true to the word in our teaching, in our Bible studies, in Sunday school, whatever, whatever avenues we use to teach the word. We need to make sure we stay true to the word. Not teach man's wisdom, but teach God's wisdom. The wisdom that comes down from above. Oh, Timothy, oh, church, guard the deposit. He says, avoid all the other nonsense that can derail you from the gospel. For by, by professing it, some have swerved from the truth. So guarding the deposit of the true gospel is really a first order issue. It's, the alternative, in Paul's experience, is disastrous. There's people that are swerving from the truth. There's people that are denying the faith when they get away from what is true and pure, the true gospel. What is the gospel? Let me summarize it very quickly. You've heard me say this before many times. Hopefully I'll keep on saying it. If I ever stop saying it, then make sure you rip me out of the pulpit here. But very simply, it is that God is a holy God, that we have rebelled against God by sinning, by, actually as Pastor Andrew read from Romans 7, by, by not doing what he has told us to do and, and, and by doing what he has... By, by not doing what he's told us not to do. We are wretched people. Paul recognized that. Oh, wretched man that I am. We sin against our creator and against our Lord. But in his great love and in his amazing grace, God sent his son from heaven where the perfect God came as a man. And unlike the first man, Adam, and every single person since that, Jesus was without sin. And that qualified him then to pay the penalty for what we deserved, namely death. But by his death and by his blood, we can be forgiven. And we have to turn from our sins and we have to believe that Jesus died for us. And if we do that, the Bible says that we will be saved, rescued from the penalty of our sins to receive the gift of eternal life. That's the gospel. If you're here today and I've never heard that before. I'd love to talk to you some more. There's a light post that's out in the foyer there, and that's usually where I am after the service. But that's the gospel that we need to proclaim. That's the gospel that we need to guard. And then Paul closes this letter with just a very simple greeting, the shortest greeting of any of his letters, grace be with you. 
It's simple, but it really just draws all this together. Because it's grace that God has so richly provided for us. As Christians, grace is the most valuable possession that we own. It is the greatest of God's blessings. It is by grace that you are saved. God's grace summarizes the gospel that we are to guard. And so what do we do with this grace? What did Paul do with this grace? Grace be with you. He recognized that it came from down from above, and this is what he wants then to fan out to others. God's grace. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have um, preserved this letter in our Bibles. We confess that we have been humbled, that we have been challenged, that we have been admonished, that we have been warned. I know I have as a minister of the gospel. But we've also been encouraged by, uh, by how you have pointed us and and pointed our church to the way of the righteous and to the way of the godly. Help us all to stay on that path. Help us as a church to retain the standard of sound words. And please help us not to swerve from the truth. Keep us in the faith, we pray. There's so many things out there that threaten to draw us aside, draw us away. So we pray that you would keep us in the faith. Help us to be able to discern what is true from what is false. Help us, our Father, to guard the deposit of the gospel that you have left us with, that you've entrusted us with. And we pray that you would help us to always remember you, the Father of lights and the giver of every good and perfect gift, for our joy. Help us to understand the gospel, the fact that you have given us so much even while we were still sinners. I pray that as we start then to get our heads around your gift of salvation, that it would cause us to do good, to be rich in good works, to to be generous and ready to share. Pray that you would help us to that end, for the good of the church, your church, and for your glory. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.